Forletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Forletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Okay, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our podcast. I have two guests today. Both of them have uh, some outstanding credentials in law enforcement, and today we're going to talk about the smiley face killers. Um, I have with me uh, retired Sergeant Detective Kevin Gannon from the New York Police Department, and I have uh, Lee Gilbertson. We'll, we'll refer to him as Doc. Uh, he's the, he has a PhD, and he's worked in relationship on, on gangs and a whole different set of uh, credentials. And uh, we would spend a lot of time um, mentioning the, the background of these two gentlemen. So I want to welcome uh, both uh, Kevin and Doc. Morning. Morning. So anyways, Kevin, let's start with you. Uh, I know, uh, I guess back in, in, back in 1997, you guys were, st- I, I believe you were still working at the time, and started seeing some type of pattern of homicides involving young men. So if you can explain a little bit about the the theory that you guys had developed. Yeah, back in 1997, I was a sergeant um, in the uh, missing person squad, uh, the special investigation division in uh, Manhattan. And within a fifth, probably within the first two weeks, I got the job was my first case. Uh, Patrick McNeil, a young man from Ford University, was out drinking on a Sunday night with friends, disappeared, and uh, 50 days later was recovered in Brooklyn in Al's, by Al's Head Pier in a body of water in a very unusual position, uh, floating on his back, face up, uh, a whole bunch of different stuff that led me to believe, according, plus with according to the water currents and information I had uh, uncovered from the uh, NYPD Harbor Unit that the body could not even have floated out to there. So I, at that point, I thought the case was really suspicious. And within the next 15 months, we had two other similar cases. In fact, one kid uh, a year later on New Year's Eve that wound up in the same exact spot as Larry. And they had floated 9 and 12 miles respectively um, to that spot, which I knew was a viable impossibility because I had another case of a young female who went was uh, abducted and was murdered. and she was found in East River, only a block from where a house was located down by the South Street Seaport. Uh, so she didn't even float the two or three miles out to Alset Pier. But these young men who were way uptown uh, uh, in Manhattan, they floated, like I said, an extra nine and 12 miles out, uh, respectively, out to uh, Alset Pier. So none of the currents actually matched. And we had you know, three kids in a, in a 15-month period. Uh, I believe that these cases were connected, and at the time, uh, you know, just the way it was, NYPD did not want to investigate it as a, a serial. I mean, uh, I always say that the two most dreaded words in the police department are serial killer 
and then the two words that subsequently follow, uh, which are task force. <laughs> Nobody wants those words either because of the amount of uh, finances it costs to, to, you know, encompass an investigation of that magnitude when you have a task force like they did with the Son of Sam, where it's, uh, you know, it would be like a million dollars a day, three, four hundred detectives around the clock, 24 hours a day. Nobody wants that, you know, so. Right. The one, one thing that uh, I wanted to mention to our listeners is that uh, I actually uh, met Kevin Gannon through an actual missing person investigation I was involved with. And we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about uh, uh, the Dakota James uh, incident. Um, but to, uh, to continue on this theory that you guys developed, uh, I knew there were other uh, incidents of fitting these descriptions because I believe that a lot of times these medical examiners would say, you know, it was like an, an accidental drowning. And uh, then I guess that's where you guys started looking at these cases more suspiciously. Yeah, well, what happened was, like I said, when NYPD put the case to bed, uh, you know, I just finished my career. I promised the McNeil family that when I retired and the Andrews family that I would look at the, into these cases. And then after I retired in 2002, I um, I just went on, on online and I looked up like uh, drowning cases or young men, you know, college, university drowning. And I saw four people had gone missing in Minnesota where Doc's from. And like a, like a nine day period, I was like, wait a minute, that's just, that's just, you know, too much of an aberration to have that, that, that many uh, that individuals and all, you know, in close proximity of time and they all wind up drowned. I said, when is, when did drinking and alcohol and drowning become a, a new phenomenon? So I looked at that and I had made some phone calls and I really didn't get too much information. Unfortunately, after that, it's a whole story, but I, I wound up getting cancer from, you know, being a first responder to the World Trade Center, I was I was out for over you know six seven months of uh, intensive chemo, and when I came back a year later, I um, I looked at a website and I found this website called Drowning in Coincidence by some uh, blogger named Vance Jones, whose brother supposedly had drowned, and he had all of a sudden I see like this thirty to thirty five cases of young men across the country. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. And that's what really propelled the investigation. And then, um, so I, I started. We started looking at it with me and my other teams, Anthony, my partner, and Mike, who you met. And right. then in 2006, a young, a young man went missing from Minnesota, from Doc's University. And Doc had done this whole study that was wound up on Fox News, on with his graduate students, two females, and and, and they put this whole package together with him, and had a distinct pattern of. East, West, East, West, East, West, North, South for these victims in the Midwest. And I said, wow, he's got such a distinct pattern. That guy's brilliant. We have to, we have to find him. So Anthony and I uh, went out there to find him. So we got to get him together and show him what we have on the East Coast because his pattern didn't match ours. But then we started thinking that there may be more to this than just one serial killer. This looks like it was well-structured and organized. It might be gang-oriented. And I had been in the cottage and gangs before that. so. We, we all ended up going out and found Doc, and we had a, a meeting in his office. We sat there for like three hours, and it wound up being an epiphany for like the three of us. And then Doc, you know, gave us all his information. We gave him hours, and uh, we went on from there, and Doc can tell you all about it and, and his aspect of how he got started with that. Yeah, Doc, if you could elaborate on that, it'd be great. Okay. Um, 
Well, I was, uh, after I got out of the infantry, I went over to Signals Intelligence. And I did that for 10 years. Uh, so, you know, that requires having to keep in your head uh, frequencies, call signs, locations, unit designations, all that stuff. And then all relative to a map. And plus their activity, what are they doing? So uh, the first semester I taught crime mapping. Uh, I, I looked I looked at it and I had projects for the students. I had to map out different serial killers. Well, the second time I had taught it was in 2006. <laughs> and I had four graduate students, so I wanted to give them something extra to do. And I went online looking for serial killers again. And oddly enough, I came across the same website that Kevin was talking about, Vance Holmes' Drowning in Coincidence. And I'm reading down through it. And as I'm reading all these different cases, my brain is, you know, collecting the data. And I'm like, there's a pattern here. Yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure what it was, but some told me there's a pattern here. So I opened up uh, a spreadsheet and I created a, a, a database for it and I started plugging in the data. And now I can visually see it in front of me. And I'm like, yeah, there's some of these numbers are, you know, are starting to form patterns. So I, I did a bit more and then I started searching the internet in general and I found even more cases. And at the time, uh, I, I based on the data I had collected, I knew that the cases went from Moorhead, Fargo Moorhead, in North Dakota, Minnesota, all the way out to New York City. But according to Vance's website and some others that I found at the time, it was referred to as the urban legend of the I-94 killer. And of course, I-94 ends in Detroit. So I gave that to the two students to work on. I had two guys who went off looking at mapping out uh, psychics uh, comments on, on a missing person case up north. And they actually went up there and visited the site. Um, but these two gals, they looked at it. And, and as they were compiling more and more data uh, and they were showing it to me, I would give them recommendations for well, try mapping this out and see what happens. Or do this statistical analysis. Because I wasn't convinced that this really was a killer. And you have to really be careful because nature by itself does a really good job of forming patterns. And you can be confused by that. But when we kept looking at it statistically, the standard deviation between the victims was so tight that it's like, wait a minute. And that's one of the biggest, uh, you know, everybody says, oh, I debunked this study. Nobody's ever seen the data I have except Kevin and Anthony and, and my former grad student, Adam. Other than that, how in the heck would they know uh, what I have and what I don't have? Uh, right. Second, when you look at just the argument of it, when you look at these victims and their personal demographics, you know, how tall they are, how fat they are, what are they studying, what sports are they in, and so forth and so forth. I have 108 variables in my data set on each victim. 
I don't think the FBI's data set on profiling is even that big as far as <laughs> what it covers. Sure. I mean, can the FBI tell me whether or not a victim was active in his church youth group? I mean, that's how detailed I got. And when you look at these victims, and now think logically about this. If I snatch any one kid, not necessarily even my victim, but if I just walk on campus and snatch the first kid that I can get my hands on, there is someone exactly like him on every campus in this United States. Right down to his height, his weight, how many teeth he's got in his head, how many fillings. There's somebody exactly like him on every campus. Major, you name it. But here's the catch. These victims who end up snatched out of a bar and in the river or the lake only occur on certain campuses at certain times of the year. In fact, certain days of certain months. And that's the, that's the part that made me go, wait a minute, something is wrong here. This is not random. This is not nature forming patterns. And if we look at serial killers, and this is a network of them that's being you know, organized. If we look at that, serial killers select victims that are very, very similar because somewhere in their past, something set them off on this path of destruction. And they're trying to eradicate that type person or whatever it is. Whether it could be something as simple as they all wore red shirts or all their female victims wore red dresses. I mean, it can be that simple. But these victims are on every campus in certain cities over and over again. You know, we don't have one in Mankato, but we've got, you know, La Crosse, Eau Claire, Milwaukee. I mean, with, with multiple, with multiple ones, with multiple ones, over and over and over. Yeah, not, not not just one, but you know, one, two, three, right. five, twelve in in lacrosse. You know, so and that's that's like I said, that's what made me sit up and go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. This needs to be looked at. And that's about the time, because uh, you know, just out of curiosity, and we were just testing a hypothesis. We were doing scientific study using the data, and I said, you know, I, because I did, uh, I did a thing where I predicted when they could catch the fishing hat bandit down in Minneapolis, and did that with Fox 9 News, so I called up the producer, and I said, hey, I got this thing these two grad students are working on, what do you think, and he said, yeah, that sounds interesting, so he came up, and he recorded it, and they put it on TV, and that's what Kevin saw, and he and Anthony showed up completely unannounced, caught me way off guard. And like he said, we sat there for about four hours. And probably within the first hour, we realized that what they knew filled my holes and what I knew filled their holes. And we just exchanged information enough that we're like, we have to work together on this. Because we were answering each other's questions. So, Kevin, you when you... When you met Doc and you guys started looking at these suspicious deaths, uh, is that sort of when you formed your uh, investigative team and sort of put it all together? 
Well, yeah, well, we, it was the beginning of the team. It was, the, it was the beginning of the team. I mean, we hadn't yet put, put anything together except that we really thought we were on the right path and that we came to the uh, conclusion that, as Doc was saying, that these cases were just so narrowly specifically related that it, it appeared that the victims were definitely being targeted. And, um, you know, so then the question was, why these specific victims? And then, like I said, from there, the pattern just developed to, like, like Doc was saying, to... We had the same kids that were involved. First of all, they were a lot of them were involved in some of the same sports. I mean, um, we had we had all different kinds of sports in the beginning. Obviously, the lacrosse seemed to be a big one in the beginning because we had Chris Jenkins, and then a few years later we had another kid uh, out there, Jake Anderson. They were both lacrosse goalies from the University of Minnesota. I mean, you can see the pattern was starting to develop, but um, we we started looking at that all these kids wound up being like with GPAs 3.5 and above. I mean, that, that made it very difficult. A lot of them were taking, like Doc said, some of the same, uh, same courses we had to the point where we've had now over like 40 that were involved in, in engineering. Most of them were in like STEM, like science, technology, you know, engineering, math. So we had, we had, you know, really high achieving kids. They were all athletic. They were on the basketball team. They were on the football team. They were state wrestling champs. They were, they were all top shelf athletes, and that was just so specific. They were like, "Why are they going after these guys?" You know, so you can't just go to a bar and just pick out the guy and say, well, "I'll take that guy. He looks like he's an athlete." I mean, they had a they had a no, and then my our other partner, Mike, who you met, who well, was on the show with us, Mike was a hell of a detective for the NYPD, and and Mike said, you know, from uh from knowing about colleges and stuff and kids. He said, are you kidding me? All that stuff's actually on the internet. You can just go and look at a kid and you can see what dorm he's at, what, what his GPA is, what his major is, what I said, really? So it was, you know, and obviously I wasn't really big into Facebook and all that stuff where these kids put everything they do out in, in the public venue now. But mm-hmm. for these guys, it was like, the airways are saturate, saturated with whatever information they're putting out there that these guys, it makes it easier for you know, for these perps, so I say, hey, there's our kid. Or oh, what bars they frequent? They know they frequent at night. They can they could just sit out at a dorm and say, oh, here he comes. Here comes here comes Johnny Smith. Okay, blah blah, and follow him and this and make the uh, make the idea that he's going to be their victim for the night. And um, and like I said, then after that, we did a lot of investigation. Lacrosse was our, our first big hotspot, and because um, they had multiple kids, um, it's it, it just. It was just something that, like I said, we started we started putting this thing together. We started looking. Then I started getting that autopsy report. Started looking at levels of decomposition. Started looking that these kids don't really have any any decomposition on the bodies when the bodies are recovered. And from my homicide experience, I'm like, uh, this these kids aren't in the water for the amount of time that they're missing. So where are they? Are they actually being held alive for a period of time? And and then that that's you know that's another thing that, that started putting the whole case together. And then. I, uh, I was connected to a doc. I said, we really need a real top shelf medical examiner that would uh, agree with us. And that's how um, Nikki Egan, who first put us in People Magazine after we had our press conference in 08, she actually connected me with Dr. Cyril Weck. And then eventually I got in, t- in touch with Dr. Michael Bodden in some cases because I knew him from the New York, being a New York City medical examiner. And, uh, you know, we got some of these, these, these guys to get behind us, top shelf leading forensic pathologists, not just in the country, but in the world. You know, these sure. guys did the Kennedy assassination, Martin Luther King assassination. You know, these are, these are, you know, Klaus Van Bulow case, John Belushi case, all the, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein case from just recently. And, right. 
you know, from that from that case, from from having those guys to support our analysis on that the case is one homicide, that just uh, made us know we were on the right track and to keep going, you know. So when you began to look at all these individuals, so what I'm gathering is that you saying these victims could have been targets of opportunity. Is that what I'm understanding? That's what he says. A part of them, some of them can be ad hoc where they could be, you know, uh, targets of opportunity, but not really. We thought they were specifically being researched and, 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 and targeted for their GPAs, the high level of GPAs, the, the mm-hmm. fact that they were star athletes at the same time. They weren't just like brainiacs that you have all these kids. They would have found a lot of those. These kids were smart and athletic. You know, they were like the Rose Scholar mm-hmm. kid. They were the kid that was 3.5 or 4.0 and also the state wrestling champ or the high school basketball star or the, or the, you know, the college basketball star now that they were in college. And the, the, the captain of the lacrosse team, like Chris Jenkins, they were, you know, they were the football athlete, the, the, the quarterback, the wide receiver, the running back. They were all, they were all right. the, the best of the best. So when you guys started your initial investigations into, these, into the missing person type, and then somehow uh, they ended up in the, in the water. So when you began to focus this, is this when you started to discover the uh, the insignia of the smiley face that was found near the crime scenes. Yeah, well, listen, bringing Doc yeah. on was the whole thing. But smiley face was like that was okay, but we really, I mean, like in the beginning, we weren't really so sure about it. But there was other graffiti, and Doc, you know, Doc uh, is a gang expert in uh, from the National Gang Crime Research Center. I mean, he's like the he can, he can explain. He's like the author of like that whole journal and and everything. So he having him on board and knowing these gang symbols. I mean, I was in, I was in, like I said, narcotics. So I know Latin Kings, I know, you know, Bludge Crips, but I mean, he knew everything. He knew every symbols. He knew whether these were just regular tagging symbols or from taggers, or these were really related to gangs or, or, or well-structured organized gangs. And then when we started seeing that kind of stuff, the different scenes, we were able to put together that there, there's more to going on than just a smiley face. But Doc can explain the whole thing about um, you know, his, uh, his expertise in, in gangs and everything. Yeah, Doc, can you go into that a little bit further on the actual smiley face and when you guys began to examine these crime scenes and this particular symbol seemed to show up at a lot of these, uh, these cases? Well, it's, you know, actually when we first went out. The first time we drove cross country was 2007. Like I said, we met in October 2006. And then it was that following May is when uh, Adam, my grad student, and I flew out to New York and we met Kevin and Anthony out there and then drove cross country back here. And, you know, I wasn't looking for symbols. I teach forensic photography and I, you know, from my time in signals intelligence, I'd rather have information I didn't get to than to be sitting there scratching my head, wondering where the missing puzzle piece was. So I had a digital camera and as we were traveling back, I, I, I if I was busy doing something, I gave the cab, camera to Adam or to Kevin or Anthony, but there was always somebody taking pictures every step of the way. So we had, thousands of pictures and because you never know you never know which one's going to have the secret right 
we just took pictures, you know, every time we go somewhere, take a picture to the north, picture to the east, every direction. And then as we move, you just keep taking pictures. Take pictures. Now, hold on, one, let, me, let me just interrupt for one second. Let me just interrupt for one second. About when he's talking about yeah. where we go, we're going to the crime scenes of where all these victims were missing. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. We, we start where they were missing, and we literally walk the whole distance down the river to where they were recovered. The only mm-hmm. exception that I can think of was Gerald Smith because it was like 85 miles of wow. river and we weren't walking that. So we drove down there. But most of them are, you know, within a couple, two, three, five miles maybe. So Kevin and I would just, and Adam, we just hit the river and off we go. We just walk along the edge of the river through the woods and taking pictures as we go. Most of them, quite a few of them are in the city. So as we're walking down alleys and stuff, you know, right around the bar where he went missing or the fraternity or whatever it was, or the dorm room where he was supposed to return to, or the hotel room, you know, whatever it was, we would just take pictures of everything, the curb, the wall, you know, the parking lot, you name it. And then when we got back, I sat down because I'm the executive editor for the Journal of Gang Research, and I've been tracking gangs and militias and hate groups since 95. And uh, I just looking through the pictures. And again, after a while, I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I should record what kind of graffiti I'm seeing. So I created another spreadsheet and I just started recording topically like, you know, this is a six pointed star, which would be gang graffiti, gangster disciple or, you know, folk or whatever. Uh, so I'm just recording this, and then afterwards I'm looking at it, and I'm like, you know, this darn smiley face keeps showing up, but it doesn't show up, you know, like at his fraternity or in an alley. It's always near where the body is recovered. And so then I started going out on my own just the every bridge in Minneapolis that I could get to, the ones up here where I live. And as I would go to different conferences, I'd just take my camera and go down to the alleys and the bridges. And even when I was in Europe traveling, and it got to a point where my my colleagues, we would say, hey, there's a smiley. You know, it'd be like, we're all over Rome and we see one smiley face, you know? And so when people say they're ubiquitous, you know, all purpose and that they're everywhere. No, they obviously have never done what we've done. You don't see a smiley face everywhere. In fact, it wasn't until that reporter from Channel 5 made an issue out of it and called them the smiley face cases. After that, yeah, people were throwing this thing up everywhere for about a year just a mess with us. First, then, thankfully, the police have graffiti abatement programs and they painted over them. But you, you didn't see the smiley everywhere. And here's the catch. Sometimes I'd see a smiley, but he'd have a joint in his mouth and there'd be a marijuana leaf there. That's not ours. And it usually wasn't down next to where the body was recovered. It was back in town somewhere. But when you get the iris, it'd be the smiley, and then there'd be these other symbols that kept pop, just like the victims, kept popping up every time I'd see that smiley down by the body. And that's when we could go, 
I think that smiley's one of ours. That means that the group that's doing this killing has been here. And the reason I know that is because it's the same color paint as these other symbols that we've learned to identify. And those symbols we have only shared with a couple of US politicians in their office in DC. Kevin and I went there, a representative from DOJ, and we've briefed the FBI twice on two separate occasions. And so we have shared these symbols, but only with authority. We're not putting them out in the media because we don't need any more copycats. Exactly. So these symbols and, and the profile that you you guys developed, you came up with some some theories. Uh, and, you know, I think everybody looks at it and says, well, you know, who is actually responsible uh, for the smiley face killings? I mean, is it a group? Is it an organized group? Is it a loosely, you know, a, a, a loosely connected group? Or are they actually serial killers? Uh, what's your take on that, Kevin? Well, what I always said from the beginning was they're a well-structured, organized group with cells uh, placed throughout the United States in major cities. And it, that's the whole, you know, whole truth till today. I mean, so, um, I mean, we, we know, we know, like I said, Doc said a minute ago, we, we know who they are. We have not put those symbols out because that way people say, oh, I found a smiley face. Yeah. First of all, even if you think there's that many around, which like Doc said, we proved that there weren't. They're not in every bridge you go under. We, every time we're driving and we're going cross country to other scenes and to going through two or three different states, we don't see that. We'll see graffiti on the bridges. You don't see that many smiley faces. Ours, like I said, by the, by the scene of where the victim either went missing or where the, most of the time by the recovery site. But again, smiley face by itself would never tell us that that's, that's one of our cases. What gives it away is the other specific graffiti related to the group. And if, if uh, and when that, when that comes out, we tell you who that is, and we show you the symbols, and people are going to say, wow, they were right from the beginning. We, we know who it is. We're, we're, it, this is not any nonsense or BS. It is well-structured. It's, it's well-documented, and we know exactly who we're dealing with. Have you guys actually identified these uh, these groups? Yeah, and when we did those briefings with the authority figures, the law enforcement, as well as the politicians, and this is, again, just like the graffiti, we've never said which cases we can do this with, but we have told the law enforcement authorities in about five different cases we have given them a list by name and street address where they live of the suspects involved in that, that death. Hmm. And there have been no arrests. And in, and you know, here's, here's another thing. When we were traveling cross country, it was the first time I ever told a law enforcement officer, this is where you'll find the body and this is when you'll find the body. And that occurred, that was in 2007. And to this day, I've never been called to explain how I knew that information. And Kevin and I have gotten really good because of the analysis at predicting when and where someone will be abducted. And we've made that known. Why has no one ever contacted us, you know, and say, how did you know 
where that person was going to be found and what weekend they would be found or abducted. No one has ever contacted us. And we've told them. We've told law enforcement, we know how to do this. This is not random. Right. Right. Well, the only, well, the only people that ever actually challenged us was doc students because we had said one time that, well, we know, because part of the analysis is specific dates on the calendar. So we looked at all, a whole bunch of different uh, reasons why it would be these dates. And anyway, long story short was when we were able to get close with dates, we, we, we figured dates. We looked at patterns. I mean, I used to run a robbery unit um, uh, after I was in, uh, after I was in narcotics. And, you know, as you know, Larry, as being a detective investigator, you would look, okay, they robbed this you know, bodega, they robbed this uh, store. And you kind of see a pattern developing. They're going, you know, from east to west and north. Or what, what are they looking for? Or it's a certain type of bodega or, what, what's, what's the reason? What's the community? What, what's going on? And so we would you know, put it on a map and try to you know, focus on, we know they're doing bodegas, so we're looking for that. Doesn't mean they couldn't also just rob some people in the street. We, we, you, know, you have a description. You have a description of the perps, uh, you know, the vehicle, whatever. But the main thing was, where would we try to anticipate where the next location was? Well, Doc and I knew about specific dates. We knew about the group. We knew our cities. Like, like Doc said, we know what's what universities, specific universities are being targeted. So we, we developed a pattern. What, is it going to be University of Minnesota? Is it going to be University of, uh, you know, uh, Wisconsin at La Crosse? Is it going to be, you know, uh, in Ohio? Is it going to be St. Cloud? We knew where it was going to be, and we were looking. Okay, they hit this one last, hit this one. The next one's either going to be in Columbus, Ohio, or it's going to be in La Crosse, Wisconsin on this weekend. And then I said, man, if we only had more manpower, where we could have somebody down here and down there, we took shots. We went down to lacrosse waiting for something to happen, and bam, kid got popped in like Columbus, Ohio. And Doc went back to work that next week, and the students were saying to him, hey, where were you this weekend? That some kid went missing, and, you know, whatever. He goes, hey, yeah, hey, sure. I, I was in lacrosse. I wasn't in Ohio. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So we, we, yeah. we, we got pretty good at it. We got pretty good at it. I'm yeah, right we now. predicted we predicted three in a row. And after the second one, everybody in my class, because they asked me, where's the next one going to be? So I, I said, well, let me talk to Kevin. So I told him we got that one right. And they said, where's the next one? So I said, talk to Kevin. And we, I told him and we got that one right. So he said, where's the next one? So I told him. But that one was so close, it was in lacrosse, that, you know, it takes about four hours for me to drive down there. Then it would take some time to acquire the target and kill him and and then get back here. So every 12 hours, I went over to Super America and took 20 bucks out of the ATM machine just so I'd be on camera. <laughs> and sure enough, I showed, up in, I showed up in class and my students were like, where were you this weekend? Yeah, it was kind of funny. But, uh, yeah, no, we, we got... Yeah, we that, got was the last we yeah, that was the last time we did any prediction. Well, were the authorities o- aware of these potential uh, homicides that were going to take place at, at a particular location? Uh, no, no. We didn't give them anything a heads up like this weekend's going to happen. We just, we showed them you know, we met with them. We showed them after numerous things that like numerous abductions, numerous murders that we believe the cases were, you know, connected, that there was, uh, 
that this wasn't random, that it was specifically targeted. And, and you know, but you held, you, you, you were in law enforcement, you know, like, right. you know, unless you, unless you basically hand it to somebody on a silver platter, I sure. mean, they don't, mm-hmm. you know, they're getting, if they get a medical examiner and it says the case is, um, first of all, accidental, they're definitely not going to do anything. If they get the case where it's undetermined, which is the casual, that like, well, it could be, it, it could be a homicide, but it could be an accident. We don't know. And then drownings, I believe, I didn't know anything about drownings. We had very little drownings in the NYPD. I mean, most of all, you know, homicide was something else. You know I mean? There was always assault. There was always some type of injury, whether it was, a, you know, a gunshot wound, a knife, or blood force trauma, you know. You know, it was, it was clearly a homicide. You know, drownings, mm-hmm. you know, people just figured, okay, and it talks kids. And what happened was, it, one of the things that really got me started was I said, I knew there was very little, you know, decomposition on the body. And, and that's my expertise. So I started, I started, you know, putting the thing together. And I, I said, they got to be holding these kids for a period of time alive because they're missing for, especially when they were missing for 30, 40 days and they only have two or three days of decomposition. Where are they? And even if you killed them and put them on ice, there'd be signs of that. So I was like, could they be drugging them? I said, and, and then how do they get them out of the bar? I said, they got to drug them. I mean, I know it, it, what was smart about they were doing it was, it was always in winter months. Most kids aren't going to the lake. How come these kids aren't drowning in the summertime where there's high levels of in, intoxication or some, you know, male bravado. Somebody said, I bet I could swim the lake. And they swim the lake and the kid goes down. I mean, usually people that have witnessed this, these kids are at night sure. walking by the Mississippi river, at, you know, at, at three in the morning when drinking, instead of going back to the dorms, looking to, looking to hook up. No, it, it, none of it made sense. You might have one or two accidents, but like I said, and then with the victims being so specifically targeted with that that group of uh, you know high uh, high athletically and uh, intellectually achieving you know young men, we knew something was going on. So I, I looked at I had to figure drugs, and I'm thinking, what kind of drugs would it be? And I'm I'm thinking rohypnol, ketamine, and that was where I was really at in the beginning. And then one day, we went to view. The young man from Lacrosse, who the uh, Lacrosse Tribune called the, the one that got away, and that was actually what propelled us on the thing, on the investigation. Because in January, in January of '05, I wanted to do it, and Anthony said, "Let's do it." I said, "Nah, I need a living witness." And January 8th of '06, a few months before I met Doc, was the kid from Lacrosse who went who went missing and survived, and said he thinks he was pushed in the water, and the police and everybody blew it off. I knew he was telling the truth because the temperature was 32 degrees and he was thrown in the water and he would have been dead within a half hour from hypothermia. And he was missing at a bar at 2 a.m. in the morning. And the next thing he walks in the hospital at eight in the morning. I said, there's no way he would have survived getting out of that water, laying on the rocks for six hours. So I'm like, I said, we got to find that guy. So Anthony found the guy. We went out to Madison, Wisconsin. And the, the, the university police were really helpful. And when I went in, they had a drug map on a wall, which was like, it comes like almost like three walls. And I was like, holy crap. And I was in narcotics. So I started reading all these drugs. And long story short of it is, I see GHB, which I was unaware of at the time, gamma hydroxybutyric acid. And it says odorless, colorless, tasteless. tasteless. And I said to Anthony, I said, that's a drug. So I'm like, so then we started looking and, and testing 
we started looking at autopsy reports, which some of the places did, uh, medical examiners did a really good job. Most of the time you have to test uh, specifically or requested for those, those, uh, those kind of exotic drugs. And, um, we started seeing them. And, and most of the cases we asked the families to test for it. We paid for a lot of testing on our own for the families. They said, would you give us permission? Send a sample of your, your son's uh, liver tissue to NMS in, in Pittsburgh. And, we found the GHB, and when you get to it, as we know in the Dakota James case, he his 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 uh, liver was tested from uh, uh, NMS National Medical Services in, in, in Pennsylvania, and he does have GHB in his body also. So we know he was also drugged before, you know, he was abducted, and that's when we put together the fact that these victims were. I said on on TV in 2008 our press conference, they're you know, stalked drugged, abducted, held for a period of time, then murdered and placed in the, in the water to make it look like a, like a homicide. And that's exactly what's been transpiring all these years. And it's still happening to, to, to this day. Well, now that you mentioned uh, Dakota James, I, I'd like to get into that discussion because that's one of the main reasons why I had you come on the show today was to particularly talk about the Dakota James case. Um, and as you and I both know, um, yesterday would have been four years that uh, Dakota turned up missing. And then uh, back in, in March is when uh, Dakota's body, body was recovered. And if you recall, you and I had talked during the time that I was involved in the investigation on the missing persons end. And I know that you and I discussed, you know, looking for these symbols try to follow the trails where he ended up. And then all of a sudden, the next thing I know, you're calling me. And then uh, we appeared together on the Oxygen Network on on this particular uh, issue. So let's go back and talk a little bit about uh, Dakota James and how Dakota uh, basically fits that profile uh, of what we've been talking about in these smiley face killers. And I got to tell you, Larry, you, you helped us immensely on that, especially when we went through that whole, your investigation of that whole, you know, uh, pathway and the alleyway and by the, the, the uh, you know, the, um, what was it, the camera for the bank? I mean, everything just, you know, set up perfectly about, you know, how intact Dakota was at that period of time. And then walking through the alleyway and then like almost succumbing to something like you told us, I was like, uh, you know, I mean, he fit the whole, you know, drugs abducted and, you know, stalked, abducted and held for a period of time um, scenario that we've had in all the other cases. Yeah. And I, and I know that uh, the, the biggest gap in, in Dakota's case was, you know, once he uh, came through the alleyway, you know, how did he end up in the water? Um, and that's always been the big question and doubt in my mind. Uh, and I know that uh, you guys did your best. And, uh, you know, you always have a tremendous amount of sympathy for the family and what they've gone through. And uh, I I know that just from a logical standpoint, uh, I don't know if we'll ever be able to figure out how Dakota ended up in that water. Oh, listen, from the the map that Oxygen did and that that Doc was talking about from that, um, where, where, where he was supposed to go through the dam. There's no way that body 
you know, perfectly went through that dam. That that body had to be driven, put down uh, in the water somewhere below the dam, and, and then down towards where uh, we surmised where he would go in. And with Doc's, you know, brilliant analysis, I mean, not far from there was where Doc found uh, that was. And I wasn't with you that day. That was the day you you found a, a smiley face, right, Doc? Down there. Yeah, that uh, that whole uh, thing about him going through the dam. That's a myth. Um, while we were out there shooting the oxygen program, a, a fairly sizable, oh, I'd say it's probably 15, 20 feet long, a tree trunk went through the uh, through the dam. And it's not one of those where you go over it. You literally have to go through this thing. Um, you have to get sucked underwater, go through the gate, and then you pop up on the other side. And it stripped right. the bark off it. In fact, it was the water, the Swift Water Rescue guys who recovered Dakota is the ones who pointed it out. They said, look at that. And it stripped the bark off it. Now, the reason I know he didn't go through there is because I sat with Warner, who was in charge of that entire area for the Army Corps of Engineers for like 35, 40 years. And he showed me how to read the lock and dam record. And when we looked at it on the day that Dakota went, supposedly went through it, um, it was barely open. So he would have got mauled. And yeah. the guys who rescued his body, recovered his body, said that he looked just like he did in the pictures. Now, for being gone for three months, he should have been in really poor shape. And if he went through there, he should have been missing his shoe. Maybe his shirt got tore up. His pants might have, should have been pulled off because of the churning of the water. I mean, and he came through with his clothes intact like he just fell in the water swimming. Um, the yeah. other thing is, Warner said, well, if you go all the way back to the first of the month, you know, because he recovered March 6th, if you go back to the first, it's open. You know, one of the gates is open five feet. Another one seven, he could have passed through there. Well, yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, but that's if you've ever seen that stretch of river, that that current moves along pretty swiftly. And I mean, even even lakes don't have currents unless there's a river coming in and a river going out kind of deal. So let's let's do this the math on this one. Let's say his body is only moving at 500 feet an hour. That is crawling. You could darn near crawl that fast. Now, for a river, that is excruciatingly slow. So if you're only moving at 500 feet per hour and you're missing, you go through the dam on the 1st of March, Six days later, you will have traveled, you know, 24 hours a day. That's 144 hours total. You will have traveled 72,000 feet or 13.6 miles from the dam. And from where he was first spotted in the water to the dam is only two miles. So even mathematically, if you do the physics on all this, there's no way he came through on the first because he'd have been down in the next town. 
you know, down in exactly. the corner, on you know, on his way to West Virginia, you know. Right. But but what made it? But it wasn't, what made he it? was right there. He was right there, which means he had to have been put in that day below the dam. Actually, judging by the speed of the water, he had to have been put in maybe a half an hour before that woman spotted him floating by her property. So where was he being held for five, you know, for the two yeah, months? No, for a month and a half, yeah, for like six weeks. And But the other thing was, it makes Dakota's case really, um, I mean, obviously easy to look at. You look at the autopsy photos and, you know, he had that serious, when I saw the internal injuries to his, his neck area, that, that, that circular hemorrhage that he had, that abrasion that, I said, oh, my God, he was strangled. And then I looked at the fingers, and you could see the fingers mm-hmm. where the nails were completely, where all the blood was pushed up into those with the pinky and, and, and uh, ring finger on both, on both hands as if he had tried to either get his fingers in from the top down or from underneath going up. More than likely, it would probably be from top down because you got a ligature around your neck. You're probably going to grab from the – from under your chin and go down, and those fingers on both hands, he was trying to get his fingers to get that ligature off his neck. And I was like, oh my God. I said, can you believe this? And I, then I showed it to Dr. Work, and he said, in, in, in shock, like, like, holy crap. And he's like, this kid was strangled. I said, he's like, I, I knew, but I was like, uh, yeah. And, and, he, and he looked at it, and he looked at the fingers, and Listen, I met with the district attorney, said the medical examiner made a mistake, and we, um, we, we also went to, um, who else? We went, when, I met, when I was in a meeting, I went in to sit down with him and um, the district attorney, because he seemed to be open to stuff, and he was trying to get the medical examiner to, to do it. So when I went in, I knew I was going to get the normal brush off, which was like, uh, you know, listen, hey, I know you guys are doing it like that. You're doing a TV show. It's all just for show. And, you know, then, then you see it, you know, to, uh, you know, to make money. They didn't think that like that we were, this was like a real investigation like you had done, you know, being hired by yeah. the family. Uh, we, were doing, we were doing the same thing. And, you know, I'm not trying to disparage them, but I, I could figure that's what most people would think. And I understand a lot of these people do those shows for that. I only did right. these, I only agreed to do this, this show because I said, are you going to try to prove and to, you know, to support us that we can substantiate that these cases are homicide. And when they said yes, then I said I would do the show. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have do, did it. And that's why I didn't do anything for, how many years was it, Doc? Uh, you know, at that point, it was like 12 years. We hadn't done anything. So yeah. we, we decided to do it. We went, I had the meeting with the uh, district attorney. He came in, and we were sitting next to him. with like an FBI agent and a, um, um, a, secret serv- a retired Secret Service agent, two retired guys. That were friends of his, and he figured he might as well have law enforcement to support, you know, what I was going to say and what he was going to say. And he said, "Well, you know, I know you guys were trying to investigate it, blah 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 blah, and all this stuff." And he said, uh, "The medical examiner doesn't think there was really any evidence to, to the contrary, to change the diagnosis." But I said, "Well, maybe I could change your mind on that if I if I can show you something." And the, the district attorney said, "Yeah, sure." And I showed him the pictures. I told him about the injury to the neck and I showed him the pictures of the fingers and the two law enforcement agents go right away. 
oh my god he was he was he was being strangled he tried to he tried to to, uh, to, to prevent himself from being strangled, he was he was he was fighting for his life. They 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 knew it right away. And then the district attorney's eyes like popped out, and he was like, "Really?" But like, he looked. He says, "Jesus Christ!" He says, "Can I take these? Can I bring these back in your analysis to the district attorney? Uh, I mean, to the uh, to the medical examiner?" I said, "Yeah, sure, please do it." And it seemed like you know they were going to try to do something. So I can't knock him at all. And I know he went back to him and. Medical examiner just uh, refused to change his diagnosis, like as if like no one's going to say that I was wrong. Nobody can ever admit that maybe I made a mistake or whatever, or maybe they don't want a serial killer. I don't know what it is why law enforcement is afraid to investigate these cases. And I don't want to say at all. We don't even want to say the totally tied into the smiley face killers. Just investigate it on its own merit that this is a homicide in your community. Do your job. You know, like Bill Belichick always says, just do your job. Don't worry about everybody else. And, you know, nobody wanted to do it. And so and it was like, you know, this is, this is the, you know, the, uh, the war we've been up against, you know, from the very beginning. Yeah, it was interesting when we met with Dr. West. We were chatting with him and it was going back and forth and we were sharing information. He's asking us questions. And then Kevin opened up the folder. And he laid out the picture of Dakota's neck. And Dr. Wex picks it up and he's looking at it. And you can see he's really thinking. And then I looked at him and said, show him the hands. And so Kevin put the picture of the hands out there, the left and right hands. And Wex looked at it. He laid down the picture of the neck that he had in his hands. And instinctively, he reached up to his neck with both hands like he was trying to remove a ligature from his neck. Mm-hmm. And he looked yeah, up at yeah. us and he goes, he was strangled, with a, manually strangled with a ligature. And we're like, thank you. That's the exact conclusion we came to. And Kevin was telling me, and he can share this, from, from what I recall, when he came out of that meeting, didn't both those guys on either side do the same thing as soon as they saw the pictures? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, they did. They were... They were reenacting as if like, oh my God, what would you do if that was around your neck? And they just basically duplicated how he would have gotten those two nails to be so full of blood when the rest of his hands did it. I mean, there's only one way that happens. That happens from that direct pressure of that ligature around that mm-hmm. first knuckle of, of you know, the, uh, right, right below your nail pushed all that blood and left it in there because, you know, that wasn't from, you know, lividity from the body, body settling or blood would have been in all 10 fingers, not just in these four fingers. Obviously he couldn't get the, the big finger in like the middle fingers or anybody else. He only could get those in. So, you know, it, it, this kid was strangled. I mean, he was abducted. I mean, he was drugged. He was abducted, held for a period of time. And then unlike the other cases where we didn't know if they were drowning them in a bathtub and then put him in the water or they took him down to the lake and then drowned them how they were doing, because some cases are drowning, but um, this kid was, you know, literally strangled. So there was really clear evidence that this was, you know, not a drowning. Besides the fact that when looking at his autopsy report, one of the things that we have, like in, when we wrote our forensic textbook on homicide in these cases is the coldest eyes were cloudy and his eyes were closed. And what Doc and I had, uh, had gone through was that, if the eyes are if the eyes are closed, it takes six to twelve hours to develop a film on the eyes, but it takes twelve to twenty four hours 
for um, for him to be exposed to air with the eyes closed to develop cloudiness on the eyes. And that would not happen with eyes that are face down in the water. So that means he had to be on land for a period of time, you know, dead at least 12 hours before. So they had to kill him the night night before and then, you know, put him in the water, you know, uh, sometime, you know, in the early morning hours when nobody's around four o'clock, you know, five o'clock. That's usually the best time that we've figured it out. Just like with the um, living witness in lacrosse, because like I said, he walked into the hospital at 8 a.m. in the morning. He couldn't have done it. So I figured, wow. He said he laid on the rocks for eight hours or for six hours. I said, no, you didn't. He said, but I felt like I was only there for 10 minutes. But I guess it must have been six hours because when I walked into the hospital, they told me it was 8 a.m. in the morning. I said, no, you would have been dead an hour later at 3 a.m. in the morning if you had, you had uh, you know, uh, laid on the rocks. I said, they drugged him in that bar. The last thing he remembers is like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, closing time. They held him with that drug until about 6.37 in the morning, threw him in the Mississippi River. He got out, laid on the rocks for 20 minutes. He said he heard traffic and ran into the hospital. I'm sorry, he ran into the hospital at 7 a.m. in the morning. They didn't do the, his, um, they didn't uh, bring and do any tests on him until 8 a.m. So it's 7 a.m. So he went in at like 6.30, got out, walked into the hospital at 7. I knew, so that means they held him for about a, a period of four, four and a half hours before he threw him in the water when nobody's around. So I know that to me, the time that they usually put these kids in the water is, you know, usually, you know, after all the bars are closed, people have gone home, cops right. have basically gone to bed doing their paperwork. Like, you know, as we know the, uh, the cooping hour, like five o'clock in the morning, they're doing their paperwork, coming back into the station house, finishing their work from the night before. Bam, nobody's around. Throw the kid in the water five, six a.m. in the morning. That's when they're usually disposing of the bodies. Great. So, on the current situation, I guess nothing has changed in the terms of Dakota's case. Uh, everything has basically gone cold. Is that, is that my uh, correct observation on this? Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, no, we're not, right now we're not doing anything on it. I mean, down the road, we, we definitely hope to, uh, I mean, we're still monitoring you know, new cases, still working on them. Eventually, we hope to eventually... Uh, put all this material out and not like a forensic textbook, which we wrote first because we, you know, we, we wanted to show people it from a forensic homicide standpoint. So we didn't want to write some book. We didn't do it for money. Just like we didn't do the TV show until 12 years later. But now it's at a point where one way or another, whether we're through a book or going, uh, going on TV, because the TV show did not get to the point of, of showing who the killers were and the evidence that we have on the gang. So one way or another, we have to eventually come out and, and show who the killers are. And we're hoping to do that. Hope maybe in the, you know, put something together, maybe in the next year or so and put, put everything together and then, and put it out so that, and then have a, a major press conference or, you know, go on one of the TV shows, whether it's Dr. Phil or somebody who uh, we've been on before or with a couple homicides. We did another, another case in Texas with a death row case where we proved the guy didn't commit the murder and they, um, the Supreme Court's now looking at that case. So the idea is, you know, some ways someone gives us the time to show the evidence where it's not like 15 minutes on a show, like, you know, going on, you know, Anderson Cooper or, you know, one of these things or Dateline. If we could get on and really show the evidence, um, like I said, that's what we're going to try to do and uh, eventually put it out. And then at that point, hopefully law enforcement says, or the public has much of an outrage and says, you know what? I think there's something to what these guys are saying. Maybe we, um, 
maybe law enforcement should take a second look at this. And that's, you know, you know, we're not here trying to trash law enforcement. We were in law enforcement, teaches criminal justice. He has great respect. And most of his students go to law enforcement, you know, from right. that graduate from him. But we, but at the same point, Larry, you know, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta do your job, you know, and if there's something here, okay, maybe you missed it. Maybe, uh, maybe it wasn't willful ignorance, but as doc said, had nobody ever called us, I put my case, the first case in the, the VICAP system. And that means if any other case in the last, you know, 20 years of a, of a young man that was suspicious, anybody punched into, you know, the database, their case, my case, Pat McNeil would have came up. Yet nobody has ever contacted me now in 20, you know, in, in 24 years. So the, so the question is, you know, are people just not doing their jobs or are they, they thinking they're just accidental? Most cops don't know what's going on. The medical examiners are giving them the uh, catch 22. Hey, listen, sure. you know, it, it, I don't know what it is. But like I said, when the evidence comes out, we're hoping that this will at least maybe uh, initiate uh, an investigation. Well, Kevin, I, uh, I want to thank you and Doc for all the time uh, you've given us today. Um, I know a lot of people don't know, but you have volunteered your investigations and I know that uh, you guys made significant personal investments uh, in, in all these cases. So uh, I know that the families would owe you all your group, uh, you know, a great deal of, of gratitude for taking on these most challenging cases in our country. So again, I want to thank both of you for coming on. I hope at some point in time that we can not only uh, solve all the other ones, but uh, close to home here with Dakota James, we hope that uh, somebody comes up with some information uh, somewhere, somehow, that uh, we're able to solve that uh, and put that to closure for the family. Uh, Kevin, how the, if somebody needs assistance or wants to provide information about this Dakota James case or any case, how would they get in touch with you? Yeah, they can just contact us on our website. It's called GDI or GD Investigations, Global Death Investigations. And, um, yeah, no, any emails we respond to, a phone call, there's a, there's a phone number there that they can, they can call. Um, so, uh, and, and reach me. And, uh, and, and we'll work on anybody's case. We, we, like I said, we, uh, I appreciate your nice words, Larry, but like I said, it's, it's about these families and, um, we, we do everything pro bono. We don't charge any, any, any fee for anything looking at this information. So, um, you know, yeah. our, our thing is just to help as any, uh, as many families as we can and try to get some closure. And, and at the end, like I, like you said, hopefully we'll have enough information that will spur an investigation, especially for all these families and including, uh, you know, Jeff and, and Pam James, who we, uh, we've became definitely uh, very close to. And so, and thank you for your excellent work because believe me, you helped, uh, make our investigation a lot easier when we came in just following up on all, all the uh, all the work that you had done so um yep. and we'll get back in touch with you and we'll get back okay. in touch with you when we, when we get ready to when we get ready to release the information so uh we'll let you we'll give you a heads up also absolutely that would be great forletta investigates thank you for listening to forletta investigates Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.